Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. I feel uh, Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 162 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 8, The Crew, Frank Borman and William Anders. And I got a call to come back and see Slayton uh, in Houston. And I went back there and he told me that they had uh, word from the CIA that the Soviets were planning a circumlunar flight before the end of the year. They wanted to know if we th- I thought we could change our mission and take Apollo 8 and go to the moon. And uh, that's how it all started. Uh, any idea that the Apollo program was a great voyage of exploration or scientific endeavor is nuts. That wasn't the primary mission. The primary mission was to go to the moon ahead of the Russians and meet the president's mandate. The real reason that I was in the program and the real reason that the program existed was because it was a battle in the Cold War. And we started from behind and we won. That was Frank Borman describing how the Apollo 8 Earth orbital mission became a lunar mission. Now let's meet the astronauts of Apollo 8. First, we have Frank Frederick Borman II. He was born on March 14, 1928 in Gary, Indiana, where the Frank Borman Expressway is named after him. He is of German descent, born as the first and only child to parents Edwin and Marjorie Borman. Because he suffered from numerous sinus problems in the cold, damp weather, his father packed up the family and moved to the better climate of Tucson, Arizona, which Borman considers his hometown. He started to fly at the age of 15. Borman graduated from Tucson High School in 1946. He received a Bachelor of Science degree from the United States Military Academy at West Point in 1950 where he served as an Army football manager. And along with part of his graduating class, he entered the United States Air Force and became a fighter pilot. He received his Master's of Science degree in Aeronautical Engineering from the California Institute of Technology in 1957. Later, Borman was selected for the Aerospace Research Pilot School and became a test pilot. He completed the Harvard Business School's Advanced Management Program in 1970. Borman married Susan Bugby in 1950, and they have two sons, 
Frederick, born October 4, 1951, and Edwin, born July 20, 1953. And they have four grandchildren. Following graduation, Borman was a career U.S. Air Force officer. Prior to joining the National Aeronautics and Space Administration's space program in 62, he received his pilot wings in 1951 and served as a fighter pilot with the 44th Fighter Bomber Squadron in the Philippine Islands from 1951 to 53 and as an operational pilot and flight instructor in various squadrons in the United States from 1953 until 56. In 1957, he became an assistant professor of thermodynamics and fluid mechanics at West Point, where he served until 1960. In 1960, Borman began serving as an experimental test pilot, engaged in organizing and administrating special projects for the United States Air Force Aerospace Research Pilot School from 1960 to 62. During his military service, he logged over 6,000 hours of flying time. In 1966 and 1968, Borman served as Special Presidential Advisor on trips throughout the Far East and Europe. In 1970, he undertook another Special Presidential mission, a worldwide tour to seek support for the release of American prisoners of war held by North Vietnam. Borman was selected by NASA for the second NASA astronaut group in 1962 and was chosen as the command pilot for Gemini 7. He was one of just four of this group chosen to command their first Gemini missions, the other being James McDivitt, Neil Armstrong, and Elliot C., Of course, you recall C. was killed in a T-38 trainer jet crash three months before his mission. Astronauts Gerald Carr and Joe Engel, selected later, also commanded their first space flights. Borman flew Gemini 7 in December 1965 with pilot James A. Lovell, Jr. This was a long-endurance flight which set a 14-day record and also acted as the target vehicle in the first space rendezvous performed by Gemini 6A. The two craft came within one foot of each other, and they took turns flying around each other, taking both still and motion pictures. The Gemini 6 and 7 missions were covered in episodes 65 through 68. Now, here's a clip of Borman describing his experience on Gemini 7. Well, the, the, uh, the Gemini capsule was about the size of the front seat of an old Volkswagen Beetle, a little bit smaller than that, and Lovell and I uh, were able to spend two weeks there. Basically, uh, because we had a sense of mission, we wanted to go two weeks, uh, and, and also Lovell's a great guy and very easy to get along with, so... Uh, we made it all right. Uh, it was uncomfortable. Uh, toward the end, when we were out of attitude control fuel, we were just drifting, rolling through space. The last three days were very, very long and tiring. At the, it's long. 
zero G was our greatest uh, friend. It kept you from uh, getting uh, saddle sores, and uh, it, I think without zero G, I don't believe you could have spent two weeks in that place. Borman was selected in late 1966 to command the third manned Apollo mission. Planned as an elliptical medium Earth orbit test of the second manned lunar module on the first manned launch of a Saturn V lunar rocket sometime in 1967 or early 68. However, in January 1967, the crew of the first manned Apollo mission, Apollo 1, Virgil, Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee were killed in a fire aboard their command module, delaying the Apollo program. Following this deadly accident, the AS-204 Accident Review Board was charged with investigating the root causes of the fire and recommending corrective measures. Frank Borman was chosen as the only astronaut to serve on the review board. In April 1967, while serving on the board, Borman was one of five astronauts who testified before the United States Senate Committee investigating the Apollo 1 fire. His testimony helped convince the U.S. Congress that Apollo would be safe to fly again. Borman was then reassigned to his lunar module test mission, now planned to fly as Apollo 9 in early 1969 after a first low-Earth orbit lunar module flight commanded by McDivitt in December 1968. But the lunar module was not ready for its first flight, leading NASA management to decide to replace Borman's mission with a lunar orbit flight using just the command and service module as Apollo 8 in December, making McDivitt's flight Apollo 9 in March 1969. Borman's lunar module pilot and spacecraft's systems engineer was William Anders. The command module pilot and navigator Michael Collins had to have back surgery and was replaced by his backup, James Lovell, reuniting Borman with his Gemini 7 crewmate. But what was Frank Borman like as an astronaut? To find this out, I turned to Mike Collins' book called Carrying the Fire. This is what Collins wrote about Borman. Aggressive, capable, makes decisions faster than anyone I have ever met, with an amazingly good batting average, which would be even better if he slowed down a bit. Attracted to money and power, in the long run, Frank will probably be the most successful of the group, not counting Neil, who will, of course, occupy a special place in history. End quote. Since this was Borman's final flight, I want to continue on with his biography. In early 1969, Borman became a special advisor to Eastern Airlines, and after retiring from NASA and the U.S. Air Force in 1970 as a colonel, he was made Senior Vice President of Operations Group at the airline company. In 1972, Borman received a phone call 
one evening, informing him that the Eastern Airlines Flight 401 had disappeared off the radar scope near Florida's Everglades. Soon Borman found himself wading through the murky swamps, helping rescue crash victims and loading survivors into rescue helicopters. He was later promoted to Executive Vice President General Operations Manager and was elected to Eastern Airlines Board of Directors in July 1974. In May 1975, Borman was elected President and Chief Operating Officer. He was named Chief Executive Officer of Eastern Airlines in December 1975 and became Chairman of the Board in December 1976. After Borman became Eastern Airlines CEO, it went through the four most profitable years in the company's history. However, in 1983, contentious battles with labor unions, particularly the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, led the company to abandon several profitable programs, and the resulting losses led to the sale of the airline to Texas Air Corporation, which was headed by Frank Lorenzo. Borman retired from Eastern Airlines in June 1986. Borman and his wife then returned to Tucson, Arizona, and then in 2006 they moved to Las Cruces, New Mexico, where he enjoyed rebuilding and flying vintage airplanes from the World War II and Korean era. He was a member of the Society of Antique Modelers. Borman gave the commencement address to the graduating class of 2008 of the University of Arizona. He also delivered the commencement address to the graduating class of 2001 at Lynchburg College in Virginia. For a time during his retirement, Borman was the majority owner of a Las Cruces Chevrolet dealership founded by his son, Fred Borman. Borman has since appeared in the documentary, When We Left the Earth, the NASA Missions, on November 13, 2008. Borman and his fellow Apollo 8 crewmates, Jim Lovell and Bill Anders, appeared on the NASA TV channel to discuss the Apollo 8 mission. Borman also appeared in the 2005 documentary, Race to the Moon, which was shown as part of the PBS American Experience series. The film, renamed in 2013 as Earthrise, the Lunar Voyage, centered on the events that led up to NASA's Apollo 8 mission. Currently, Borman resides with his wife, Susan, in Bighorn County, Montana. Over the course of his life, Borman has received multiple awards and honors. I'll list a few of them. Air Force Master Astronaut Badge. Air Force Distinguished Service Medal, Legion of Merit, Distinguished Flying Cross, Congressional Space Medal of Honor, NASA Exceptional Service Medal, World War II Victory Medal, National Defense Service Medal, Air Force Longevity Service Award with four clusters, Academy of Model Aeronautics Distinguished Service Award, National Geographic Society's Hubbard Medal, Dr. Robert H. Goddard Memorial Trophy, Golden Plate Award for Science and Exploration, 
Society of Experimental Test Pilots James H. Doolittle Award, International Space Hall of Fame in 1982, Robert J. Collier Trophy, and Tony Janus Award. Okay, let's move on to William Anders. William Allison Anders was born on October 17, 1933, in Hong Kong to U.S. Navy Lieutenant Arthur F. Anders and Muriel Adams Anders and was active in Boy Scouts of America where he achieved its second highest rank, Life Scout. Anders attended St. Martin's Academy and graduated from Grossmont High School in La Mesa, California in 1951. He received a Bachelor of Science degree from the United States Naval Academy in 1955 and a Master of Science degree in Nuclear Engineering from the U.S. Air Force Institute of Technology at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio in 1962. Anders completed the Harvard Business School's Advanced Management Program in 1979. He was born and raised Catholic. Anders married Valerie Horde in 1955. The couple had four sons and two daughters, Alan, Glenn, Gregory, Eric, Gail, and Diana. Following graduation from the U.S. Naval Academy, Anders took his commission in the U.S. Air Force, and after receiving his pilot's wings in 1956, he served as a fighter pilot in all-weather interceptor squadrons of the Air Defense Command in California and in Iceland, where he participated in early intercepts of Soviet heavy bombers who were then challenging America's air defense borders. He later was responsible for technical management of nuclear power reactor shielding and radiation effects programs while at the Air Force Weapons Laboratory in New Mexico. He has logged more than 8,000 hours of flight time. In 1963, Anders was selected by NASA in the third group of astronauts. He became involved in the NASA work in the areas of dosimetry, radiation effects, and environmental controls. He was the backup pilot for the Gemini 11 mission, then in December 1968, he flew as Lunar Module Pilot for the Apollo 8 mission. Anders took a celebrated photograph called Earthrise on that mission. He served as Backup Command Module Pilot for Apollo 11 before accepting an assignment with the National Aeronautics and Space Council while still remaining an astronaut. From 1969 to 1973, Anders served as Executive Secretary for the National Aeronautics and Space Council, which was responsible to the President, Vice President, and Cabinet-level members of the Council for developing policy options concerning research development operations and planning of aeronautical and space systems. He was also a consultant to the Time Mirror Organization in Los Angeles, on August 6, 1973, Anders was appointed to the five-member Atomic Energy Commission, where he was lead commissioner for nuclear and non-nuclear power, R&D. He was also named as U.S. Chairman of the Joint U.S.-USSR Technology Exchange Program 
for fission and fusion power. Following the reorganization of national nuclear regulatory and development activities on January 19, 1975, Anders was named by President Ford to become the first chairman of the newly established Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is responsible for nuclear safety and environmental compatibility. At the completion of his term as NRC chairman, Anders was appointed ambassador to Norway and held that position until 1977 when he left the federal government after 26 years. Anders briefly served as a fellow of the American Enterprise Institute, then joined General Electric in September 1977 as vice president and general manager of GE's Nuclear Products Division in San Jose, California. He was responsible for the manufacture of nuclear fuel, reactor internal equipment, and control and instrumentation for GE boiling water reactors at facilities located in San Jose and Wilmington, North Carolina. He also oversaw GE's partnership with Chicago Bridge and Iron for making large steel pressure vessels in Memphis, Tennessee. In August 1979, Anders was sent to attend Harvard Business School's Advanced Management Program. On the first day of 1980, Anders was appointed General Manager of the GE Aircraft Equipment Division, headquartered in Utica, New York. The division included more than 8,500 employees in five locations in the northeastern United States. Its products included aircraft flight and weapons control systems, cockpit instruments, aircraft electrical generating systems, airborne radars, and data processing systems, electronic countermeasures, space command systems, and aircraft surface multi-barrel armament systems. In 1984, Anders left GE to join Textron as Executive Vice President for Aerospace, and two years later, became Senior Executive Vice President for Operations. In 1990, Anders became Vice Chairman of General Dynamics, and on January 1, 1991, its Chairman and Chief Executive Officer. He retired in 1993, but remained Chairman until May 1994. Anders was a consultant to the U.S. Office of Science and Technology Policy and was a member of the Defense Science Board and the NASA Advisory Council. He established the William A. Anders Foundation, a philanthropic organization dedicated to supporting educational and environmental issues. The foundation was a primary sponsor of the American Experience episode, Race to the Moon. The foundation also founded the Heritage Flight Museum in 1996 at Bellingham International Airport in Bellingham, Washington. Anders serves as its president and until 2008 was an active participant in its air shows. The Anders Crater on the Moon is named in his honor. In 2011, Anders spoke at the first Starmus Festival in the Canary Islands, delivering a lecture on the early American space program. His talk was published in the book, Starmus, 50 Years of Man in Space. 
Now I want to list a few of Anders' awards and honors. Air Force Distinguished Service Medal, Air Force Commendation Medal, NASA Distinguished Service Medal, Nuclear Regulatory Commission Distinguished Service Medal, National Geographic Society's Hubbard Medal for Exploration, Collier Harmon, Dr. Robert H. Goddard, and General Thomas D. White United States Air Force Trophies, American Astronautical Society's Flight Achievement Award, and he was inducted into the International Space Hall of Fame in 1983 and inducted into the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1997. Now I have a clip of William Anders describing some of his experience during his lifetime. My uh, first flight was in a biplane out of uh, Weimar, Texas. We were driving by on my way to school. My dad said, well, how would you like to do that? So I think it was five bucks. I got, you know, 15 minutes, and the guy did a loop. That afternoon, driving back, here was the airplane with its nose buried in the dirt, and the pilot and his pastor had been killed because, indeed, he was too close to the ground. So that kind of made me pause a bit about aviation. You know, it never crossed my mind that I would be anything but to go to the Naval Academy. And it was there that I developed my interest in aviation. But when I got in the Navy and got to fly uh, their little N3N uh, pontoon plane, and uh, I thought, this is pretty fun. Well, when I went to NASA, I was in the third group, so-called Apollo astronauts, and about half of them were test pilot graduates. I was kind of on the bottom of the totem pole and had to wait a while. The Soviets uh, were threatening a flight once around the moon. Uh, NASA, you know, understandably got nervous, so they took Apollo 8 and deemed our flight to be a lunar orbit flight. Apollo flight, are you? We're go, flight right on. You come? We're good, Mike. GNC? We're good, Mike. Booster? Go, Mike. Okay, Captain, we look good. Apollo 8, you're looking good. Yeah, really it was just one crater after another. One, you know, the closer you look, the more craters there were. And uh, with that, Frank turned the spacecraft right side up and pointed it forward. Frank or Jim said, wow, look at that. And here was this gorgeous Earth. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light. It was good. But I just kept clicking and figuring that sooner or later one of them would be good. Well, as it turns out, one of them turned out okay. And God divided the light from the darkness. And that became the iconic Earthrise picture, which I was eventually credited with. You have it in your blood or you don't. Whatever airplane I'm flying, there's hardly been an airplane I haven't liked. Yeah, my first jet was an F-89 Scorpion. It was uh, belittled by many, called the ramp weight because of a hurricane coming. The joke was put the Scorpions on the ramp to hold it down. But uh, it was a hell of a weapon, particularly the D model, which had two nuclear-tip rockets hanging on, it, on your wings. So here I was, a first lieutenant. I could take out a whole uh, Russian uh, uh, bomber squadron uh, and probably, you know, get the Medal of Honor, but it would be posthumously. This museum is one of the very few where the, all the airplanes have already been given to the taxpayers. Most of these collections, the guys, when they die or get bored, they have to sell them and that breaks up the museum. So uh, we're the Heritage Flight Museum, we're a, we're a flying museum, a lot of people have seen us doing air shows. 
I did race at Reno for a while. Uh, I still do uh, air shows. Uh, I can basically fly anywhere I want to and uh, go low level. I mean, I love flying low level. And uh, so I just think it's great to have the freedom to, to fly. And I particularly enjoy flying formation. I enjoy leading and I enjoy uh, flying on the wing. If I make a bad landing, I'll, I'll make a touch and go and land again. It'll ruin my whole night if I can't end up on a good landing. My biggest fear is not dying, it's landing gear up by mistake. I don't play golf uh, with my boys, they don't play golf either. My sons, we, uh, we go fly uh, you know, uh, T6s and SNJs in formation you know, for our uh, weekend pleasure. I try to fly an hour a day. You know, much like my dad drank a martini, I fly an hour a day whether I need it or not. And lastly, this is how Mike Collins described Bill Anders. Quote, Intense, energetic, dedicated. No drink, no smoke, no nonsense. Used to be inflexible and a bit immature until he became Executive Secretary of the National Aeronautics and Space Council in Washington. A job that would teach anyone humility and flexibility. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.